This is the Sterling Vineyard Sundays podcast. We're a church passionate about encountering Jesus and sharing his love with our city. To find out more about who we are, visit our website at sterlingvineyard.co.uk. Great to be back with you today. It feels like not that long ago that I was standing here. So, um, last time I talked about how God has a plan for our had a plan for our salvation, and that He still has a plan, uh, and that includes us. Uh, so I hope your 2024 has started well. Um, today I will be talking about bold prayers on a God, um, and I think it's always good to get out of your comfort zone once in a while. So I'm standing here, um, but I thought I'd take it a le- another step forward. Um, so anyone that's been on the Leadership Essentials course knows that a vital part of our evening is uh, whilst Ali is getting people into groups to do discussions, that someone tells a joke. Uh, and it's usually one of the boys that tells some awful joke. Uh, and I'm not usually the one sort of person to tell a joke. So I'm going to try this morning because I heard one that I liked and I reckon I can remember it. Uh, it's nothing worse than you tell a joke and then you get to the punchline and you've kind of forgotten it. Uh, so here we go. What did the inflatable headmaster say to the inflatable boy when he took a pin into the inflatable school? I'm very disappointed with you. You've let me down, you've let yourself down, but most importantly, you've let the school down. Okay. There we go, that's it, I can sit down now, that's my job done, all right. Um, But on a serious note, um, we are obviously as a church working through the book of Acts, which is essentially a continuation of the Gospels. Uh, So I thought I would just kind of backtrack a little bit to the end of the Gospels. And it says there, uh, at the end of Matthew, there's what we call the Great Commission. And it says, All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then we obviously see that Acts is that outworking of that great commission, that, that commandment, that, um, that words that Jesus said to his disciples. And we see that in Acts 1, Jesus says his kind of final words to his disciples, and he says, wait here in Jerusalem for the gift the Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them, once this has happened, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And we see in Acts 2 at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit is indeed poured out onto the disciples. And they start performing some amazing signs and wonders. And the gospel is preached with boldness. However, it isn't all plain sailing. Uh, There also comes persecution. Peter is arrested and imprisoned, although he does miraculously escape. Stephen is stoned to death. And as this persecution comes, the believers begin to disperse out of Jerusalem and spread out to Samaria. We're also introduced to the character of Saul, who's been a great persecutor of Christians, but then he has this dramatic conversion to faith. We see later on that actually that the, um, the message, the gospel, is not just for Jewish converts, that it's for Gentiles, it's for all people. And we see this through the character of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and him and his family are saved. And then last week we looked at Acts 11. And Ali looked at the character of Barnabas and talked about how people are sent out from the church and thinking what it means for us to be sent out into our community. So that brings us to Acts 12. Um, And I just want to give a little bit of a background to Acts 12. So we have the introduction of a guy called King Herod Agrippa, 
Now, he is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was ruling at Jesus' birth, and he's a nephew of Herod Antipas, who was involved in Jesus' trial. And what you begin to see at the beginning of chapter 12 is there's a political agenda at work. Herod realizes that it's actually it's popular to persecute Christians, and this is particularly popular with the Jewish population. And we see at the beginning of this chapter that James the Apostle and brother of John is put to the sword, and now Peter has been seized at the festival of unleavened bread. The reason Peter probably hasn't been killed straight away is because it's festival time, and it would have been deemed inappropriate to kill someone during this festival. Um, because Peter has miraculously already escaped from prison in Acts 6, he's got even higher security around him. He's handcuffed to soldiers either side, and there's a number of other soldiers keeping watch. So what we're going to do is we're going to skip to the next slide, and we're going to start reading Acts 12. Sorry, it's a bit small, but I'm sure you can hear me as well. Uh, okay, Acts 12, verse 1. It was about this time that Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out, of public, out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Then he passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. And then he arrives at the house of Mary, the mother of Mark, and they say, Yay, you're here, you're free, you've answered our prayers. Or do they? On to the next slide. Um, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. What's happened here? My question is, what were they earnestly praying for in verse 5? Now, you could look down at them and say, how unbelieving. But think about their experiences. They've seen Stephen stoned to death. And they've just seen James put to death by the sword. Now, James was one of the 12 apostles. And maybe up to this point, they felt like the apostles were invincible. But that notion has been shattered. And it made me question, when we pray, what are we asking for? What are we believing he will do? Of course, we see in verses 16 to 18 that Peter isn't left outside. And there is great celebration and lots of astonishment. On to the next um, slide. 
But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. Then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So as I unpack this passage, it, it challenged me. Firstly, it reminded me of some advice I was given a long time ago, and that is do not compare yourself to others or compare your situations to others. It either leads to fear or it leads to pride. And we can often be left with the question, why? Why James? Why not Peter? Why was James put to the sword and why was Peter saved? And we see this Jesus in the Gospels rebuking the disciples when they compare themselves to others. Each of our stories is different. Each of our prayers will be answered differently. And it's important that we trust in the sovereignty of God. The second is a reminder that there is power in prayer. When the church prays, God moves. And there's a book that's really challenged me a few years ago called The Circle Maker by Mark Batterson. And if we turn to the next slide, I'm just going to read out a quote from that book. Bold prayers honor God, and God honors bold prayers. God isn't offended by your biggest dreams or boldest prayers. He is offended by anything less. If your prayers aren't impossible to you, they are insulting to God. If your prayers aren't impossible to you, they're insulting to God. How often do we pray something that maybe we know we can answer ourselves? And how often do we pray things that we know we can't answer ourselves? I wonder if you're like me, though, you do sometimes pray those bold prayers, but you aren't actually convinced they're going to be answered. Maybe like those in Mary's house, you wouldn't really believe that Peter was actually at the door. It challenges me to think about my comprehension of who God is. Have I put him in a box? What have you prayed for recently, but it lacks the faith element? Maybe you've done that comparison game and you've looked at other people's journeys. They had more faith than me. They pray more than me. It didn't work for them, so it's not going to work for me. It's easy to take our eyes off God and look at the situation and all the reasons why a miracle couldn't happen rather than trusting in the God of the miraculous. If I'm honest with you this morning, if I were to name that prayer that I struggle with, it's for my brother's salvation. I've got two brothers. I'm a little sister. I've got a brother five years older than me and I've got a brother seven years older than me. And we're all very different. They both left home when I was a teenager, so just starting secondary school. So I had my childhood years with them, but I didn't have my teenage years with them. One of my brothers is such a gentle character, is so accepting of everyone, but his God-shaped hole is filled with Reiki and New Age religion. My other brother was in the army for 13 years and now lives out in Canada with his family. He's in the adventure capital of the world. Every weekend he's skiing in Whistler and every summer he's climbing the mountains. He doesn't need God, or so he thinks. And I really struggle to see how God will break through into their lives. If we move to the next slide, I want to ask you the question, what are you struggling to believe God for? And just take a moment to think about that. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Peter was chained to two guards, and other sets of guards were watching over him. 
It was a completely impossible situation, but not for God. There is power in prayer. And I'm going to read to you a story from World War II when the nation got down on its knees and prayed. I recognize it's a rather long story, so please sit back and relax. But when I read this story, it just stirred something inside of me. And I hope it does the same for you. If we just move to the next slide. For Winston Churchill, the new prime minister, it all began with an early phone call on May the 15th that roused him from sleep. We are defeated, since the French premier, Paul Renaud. We are beaten. Churchill was well aware of the Nazi advance days earlier. Adolf Hitler's army had taken Holland, Belgium and Luxembourg, with Denmark and Norway already in his grips. England had sent more than 200,000 troops to France and Belgium, all for nothing, it now seemed. Surely it can't have happened so soon, the stunned Churchill said. The front is broken, Renaud said. The Nazis are pouring through in great numbers. The Allies had severely miscalculated the path the Nazis would take. The Germans had swept south through the supposedly impenetrable Ardennes Forest, a region the Allies had barely bothered to defend. Now, British and French troops found themselves surrounded in disarray. Their only possible escape was across the English Channel, through Dunkirk, a city in northeastern France. A mass evacuation would require funneling thousands upon thousands of soldiers spread across hundreds of miles into one space while the Nazis closed in with 1,800 tanks and 300 Stuka dive bombers. For days, Churchill resisted the escape plan. It seemed like a suicide mission. They'd be lucky to get 20,000 men home via the English Channel, let alone more than 300,000 Allied troops. But there was no other option. On May the 23rd, Churchill met with King, the monarch, King George VI, to brief him. Though naval operations were underway, pitifully few ships were ready to sail. Logistics of defending against inevitable German air attack while ferrying the troops seemed impossible. Allied soldiers were scrambling to reach Dunkirk. They barely knew which direction to go. We must pray, King George VI said. This next Sunday, I'm calling for a national day of prayer. Famously, non-religious Churchill was surely not looking at prayer as the answer, but he could hardly refuse the king. On May the 24th, King George VI addressed the nation. Let us, with one heart and soul, humbly but confidently commit our cause to God and ask his aid, that we may valiantly defend the right as it is given to us to see it. On May the 26th, at Westminster Abbey, the Archbishop of Canterbury called on God to protect the troops. Across Great Britain, tens of thousands of people responded to the king's call, uniting as never before. Cathedrals and churches, mosques and synagogues were packed to overflowing. At Westminster Cathedral, the line extended for blocks and hundreds kept vigil outside. The people didn't know exactly why they were praying, yet they prayed even so. Nothing like this has ever happened before, was how one English newspaper described the scene. The following day, though, the German high command reported, the British army is encircled and our troops are proceeding to its annihilation. The war, it appeared, was over for the Allies. Few would have argued otherwise. Everywhere, the roads were filled with British and French soldiers. Abandoned tanks and equipment littered the countryside. Thousands of refugees marched with escaping troops, some driving cars, everyone fleeing in advance of the Germans. From out of the skies would come the Stukats, stifling everything in sight. The scene was horrific, but all was not as it appeared. Something that historians can't even explain now, 
With German tanks rumbling just 10 miles from Dunkirk, Hitler did the unthinkable. On May the 24th, the day King George VI called the nation to pray, Hitler inextricably halted the offensive. For nearly three days, as England knelt as one, those tanks remained grounded. Nothing moved. It was the exact window of time the British needed to form a defensive perimeter to temporarily fight back the Germans and establish a funnel for their troops to flow through to the English Channel. Then came something else, rain and clouds. German planes bombed Dunkirk on three separate days, but each time for days afterwards, the city was enveloped by an inclement weather, making any effective follow-up from the Nazis difficult. What's more, a breeze seemed to collect smoke emitted from the German bombs and distribute it over the air the British were using to load men into boats. The Allied exodus went undetected for days. Meanwhile, word was spreading across England for the need for boats to cross the channel to Dunkirk. For what purpose, no one was exactly sure. Almost any vessel would do. Rowboats, fishing trawlers, tugs, motorboats. Hundreds of would-be skippers responded. Some had never been out of the sight of land before. Many of the crafts lacked compasses. None of them were armed. The English Channel is notoriously rough, choppy. No place for novice seamen. But once again, something peculiar happened. The water they encountered was like that of a bathtub, with barely a ripple to disturb the journey. No one had ever seen anything like it. There were so many boats that in places the water resembled a freeway at rush hour. But it was happening from Japan and Dunkirk. A few boats at a time, offloading a few dozen men, then coming back for more, round the clock, a dizzying spectacle. In the first five days of the rescue mission, more than 100,000 soldiers were evacuated. That still left more than 200,000 men, tens of thousands desperately fighting to hold the perimeter. They'd be the last to go. In the end, 338,000 soldiers made it safely across the English Channel, as well to the thanks to the effort of 850 little ships. There was a feeling of determination, not surrender. Deliverance by a divine hand. It was exactly what the British soldiers and civilians needed to forge ahead, especially so early in the war. On June the 4th, Churchill went to the House of Commons to deliver the news. We shall fight on the beaches, he thundered. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. The Prime Minister called it a miracle, a word he was not unknown to use often. There seemed no other word to describe it. Not just one, but a whole series of miracles. Without any one of them, the entire operation would have failed. Hitler halting the Buzarek, the thick protective cloud cover, the English Channel growing still, the hundreds of tiny boats appearing seemingly out of nowhere. What turned the tide? For the king, there was no question. Can we go to the next slide? Bold prayers honor God, and God honors bold prayers. God isn't offended by your biggest dreams or boldest prayers. He's offended by anything less. If your prayers aren't impossible to you, they are insulting to God. On to the next slide. But the church was earnestly praying. That's us. We are the church. Last week, Ali talked about transitioning from a church that receives to a church that reaches out into our community. What bold prayers are we praying? What bold prayers should we be praying? 
I like the way that Acts is named the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It shows what happens when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have that Holy Spirit living in us. We have that same power. We will face trials. We will face challenges. We will face setbacks. But we must persevere. We must not put God in a box. Our God is a God of miracles. Why do we do this? Because there's a lost world out there. And we are called to be witnesses to the lost. At the heart of it is prayer. And we are in this together. Before I close in prayer, I'd like to invite the band to come back up. Father God, we thank you that we can pray bold prayers. We thank you that you answer bold prayers. We thank you that you are a God of miracles. Father, in those moments where we doubt, help us to lean on our friends around us. Help us lean on those in the church that we would pray those bold prayers together and that we would see our community and our world around us changed through the love that you've given us that we would show to others. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sterling Vineyard Sundays podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, please visit our website at sterlingvineyard.co.uk or find us on social media at Sterling Vineyard Church.